15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money? Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. My name is Bruce Reyes-Chow, and this is BRC and Friends. Each episode, I chat with activists, artists, academics, and adventurers to discuss politics, faith, pop culture, technology, and as you will discover, pretty much everything else that pops into our heads. This is basically an excuse for me to hang out with friends and colleagues and riff about things that matter. Welcome to BRC and Friends. Today, I welcome to my show my newest friend, pastor, lecturer, and uh, I, I'm learning general rabble-rouser, uh, Derek Penwell. Derek Ritten has written a book with Charles Press called Outlandish, An Unlikely Messiah, A Messy Ministry, and The Call to Mobilize. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'm going to hold the cover there. There you go. There's Jesus doing all the crazy stuff. Uh, Derek, welcome to BRC and Friends. Thank you. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Great. Well, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, we, we also both have our... Uh, prerequisite bookshelves behind us. Um, mine are not very full. Uh, Derek is smarter than I am clearly and has a lot more books. <laughs> I wouldn't go out that far on that. <laughs> no, you, pro- you probably are. It's, a, it's a good. Nobody would uh, disagree with that. I know my strengths. Um, all right. So let's start off. Derek, if you would just introduce yourself a little bit, um, give me your, your preferred pronouns and anything else that would be, give me the kind of the, the credentials if you want, but then anything else that people would think uh, would be interesting about you and about your background or your history and how you've gotten to where you are. Okay, uh, I'm Derek Penwell and I'm the senior pastor at Douglas Boulevard Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. I've been here for about 11 years. Uh, I I started at Douglas um, while I was finishing up my PhD in humanities. Uh, at so University. you are smarter than me. If you have a PhD, there is... <laughs> They, Go ahead, they, sorry. Were, they were handing them out on the cheap. End. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but so I also uh, am a lecturer at the University of Louisville. Uh, I lecture in religious studies and in humanities and so forth. And um, I do a lot of work in the community, activist community around here in uh, race, race relations, in refugee ministry, um, LGBTQ community. Um, just about whatever needs addressing at the time, uh, and I'm able to say yes, I try to say yes to it. Mm-hmm. My preferred pronouns are he, him, his, um, and that's great. Anything are, interesting about me? I don't know anything. Are you bad. are you from Louisville itself, or like what's your home, Michigan? Yeah, my, my father was a uh, the director of marketing for Zondervan Family Bookstore, so I grew up in the sort of uh, evangelical heartland and um, became a disciple uh, in grad school and and, uh, and and I'm really happy I did. Yeah. Do you find yourself, uh, you know, as people know this show, I digress all the time. Uh, so do you find yourself kind of sitting in both of those worlds still or have you kind of totally moved out of that more evangelical space or where, where do you sit in all of that as you're doing your work? Uh, I, I mean, I have, it's a kind of a reference point for some of the things that I do, but most of the kind of things that I'm involved with are not easily accessed 
accessed by people in the evangelical church, which is a kind of, sort of kind way of saying a lot of those people have unfriended me yeah. over the years. And uh, some of them haven't. I mean, they've been really generous to me, given the fact that, you know, we're really at loggerheads on theology and so forth. But um, it is a it is a kind of touchstone for uh, a lot of the ways that I process, especially po- relig- popular religion and culture and politics at the present moment. Right. Yeah, I, I found so I, I grew up in a, a, a very not evangelical um, context. My, my church was progressive before I knew what progressive meant. It was always just church to me. And um, but I found as my time with my evangelical friends, some just whatever he's just and they don't give me the time of day. And then I have some that just secretly talk with me still. And it's it's fascinating to me that kind of that wall that is you know, built there and how we work through around or anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so you wrote this book. Okay. So this might be the longest subtitle I've ever seen in my life. But other than that, <laughs> I read it. It was like, but I like it. I mean, so um, and, and those of you that are read or you're going to read it. It has a lot of ways that why, why Jesus would have been a terrible organizer. Like a, a, a lot of the things that we would necessarily say, here's how you do this. Jesus really wasn't that but I I took away the main um, idea was that you're basically claiming um, that Jesus was political Mm. and that the politics in which Jesus served was political now that's a flashpoint for a lot of people as you I'm sure you know so give me the I mean so I'm sure it's the basic question okay tell me why my faith um, should be give me like if I'm in in a setting where I saw people telling me you know don't talk about politics in church. How, how, how do I respond to that like when folks are saying, hey, 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 Jesus wasn't political? Well, I, I would say just sort of in terms of referring us back to the history of the time, there was no way for Jesus to make the kind of um, critiques of life that he did and not be political. I mean, if you think about it, uh, the temple system was largely sanctioned by the Roman Empire. I mean, uh, the the Roman governor, Herod at first, and then later Pilate, they were the ones who appointed and deposed the high priest. Uh, So any attack on the temple system was a de facto attack on the whole Roman system, which was very, very sensitive uh, to its sort of conquered territories potentially uh, uh, harboring uh, political subversives and revolutionaries. And so, I mean, there, was, there, there would have been no way that Jesus could have appeared to the Roman political establishment as anything but a potential threat. That's what the whole Messiah thing was about. And if he had merely been about a sort of a spiritual guru, was wandering, uh, throughout the, 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 the sort of Palestinian outback blessing babies and talking about a better time, he would have died an old man, not through crucifixion, was, which was a political uh, kind of um, punishment meant to terrify the masses from ever uprising. Sort of like, as James Cone pointed out in The Cross and the Lynching Tree, that, that, that the cross and the lynching tree sort of occupied the same space in, in terms of sending a message to those potential folks who might get above where they're supposed to be. 
Right. So then, so why then, uh, and this, you know, I asked you about your history and all this. So why then are there so many churches? And I'm not sure it's just conservative evangelicals. I think I know there are plenty of progressive or mainline churches. Why then have they, how, how did we move to this space then? Or has it always been that we just don't talk about politics in church? Because I know there have been historically, but you know, this overarching, just don't talk about politics in the church. Where, where does that come from? Or what's, what do you, what do you think that that's kind of this, this space? Is it an American thing or is it, you know what, talk about that a little bit. Well, I, I, I think especially when being political, or that is to say, when, when talking about things that, that, that are affected and that affect politics, economics, social location, class, that kind of thing, that it's dangerous. There's a lot of, sort of powerful interests that have a stake in things staying the way they are. And they are able to bring, and, and have throughout history, able to bring a kind of pressure to bear on the church to say, you, you sort of focus on the spiritual stuff and you'll be cool with us. But if you start venturing too far over there, then uh, we can make life miserable for you. And uh, I mean, you can, you can sort of see that in, uh, for example, the way that, um, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is portrayed um, you know, who, who actually sort of claims to be doing this from a sense of her, her uh, faith commitments, uh, her, her emphasis on progressive things, and, and, and yet she's treated as a sort of pariah by certain members of the, of the establishment because the things that she says really threaten to upend uh, the social order and the political and economic order. Yeah. It just makes me giggle all the time because I know people are like she'll say things and folks' heads are exploding. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And the fact is, you know, I've often said this, but you know, people who are progressive by and large, progressive Christians, tend to be that because they care about the Bible, not because they're trying to do an end run around it. Right. Right. All right. So in your in your church. Uh, I do. Would you, how would you? You know, there's this whole blue, red, purple. Uh, how do you? How do you talk? What does your church like the congregation you're serving, and how have they moved? And how how do you preach this then to a, a community, or how does the community begin to um, kind of embrace this way of thinking? Um, well, we are in a an interesting city. Louisville's an interesting city. This is kind of a cross section. I mean, on the one hand, we have Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and, and almost directly across the street is Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And so we have a pretty, pretty uh, firm, progressive constituency within the city, but also this sort of largely Baptist and, and, and to a certain extent, conservative Catholic uh, presence. And our church has sort of staked out a position within the community as an activist church, and as a consequence, um, we attract people who are right. compelled by everything. And, and what I tell people is, you know, I, I'm sort of always in the middle of things, the Poor People's Campaign or, or Black Lives Matter things uh, in support and that kind of thing, that if I didn't preach this stuff, they would be mad at me, right? It, a lot of my colleagues, they worry about, the fact that if they sound too political, then 
um, their churches will get really uneasy and it'll cause problems. If I didn't do that, I would have problems. Right. So you, you've, in a sense, I mean, this is um, the church I'll be serving soon is, is it's kind of, there's an assumption that yes, our faith is political. Now let's stretch even further as opposed exactly. to folks who are sitting in, and I, and I honor people who kind of sit in that purple world because I have done it and I will not do it anymore. And so right. like, how do they do things? So if you were going to talk to those folks, like people are going to come who may be more progressive than their churches or elders or leaders in the church are more progressive than their, are more activists than their pastors. Um, and, and they want to kind of tackle this idea because it's not anarchy. You talk about the beginning, like you're not talking about like a Jesus of that, but how, how do they communicate that into a, a space that I think wants to avoid conflict, just doesn't maybe are exhausted by talking about it and they want a safe refuge in church. I don't know, but how do they begin to, to, to speak this reality into their communities? What kind of advice would you give them? Well, I, I would sort of say, you know, when it comes to this, this kind of emphasis that the best practice initially is to sort of duck down behind the Bible, mm. um, to take refuge in the message of the Gospels and the prophets, that there is a kind of overarching theme throughout um, both the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures about taking into consideration those who are on the margins and trying to flip that on its head, the whole last shall be first and first shall be last. Or, uh, you know, the, the lectionary text yesterday on, in Deuteronomy about giving the first fruits, the offering of the first fruits to the resident aliens, the orphans and the widows. I mean, those are themes that arise over and over and over again. And, and, and we need to begin to read scripture through the lens of God caring about the people who have often been pushed out to the side. And if we recenter them, then we are right in the heart of where God is moving. And, and rather than saying we're trying to adopt some kind of political platform that's partisan, mm-hmm. um, we're, we're in fact trying to live exactly as Jesus and the people he, that pers- who preceded him live in looking out for the, the vulnerable against the, the sort of predations of the powerful. Right. Well, so um, there's this, been this, a lot of this talk now from um, evangelical leaders who, you know, well, the poor is fine, but the government should, do, that's not the government's job, right? It's, you know, I'm seeing this, you know, pay your damn taxes to Caesar. And I mean, it's all this, I, I can't believe it sometimes. Like you're a religious leader. What are you doing? But you know, so this idea that um, you know, as we go into today, how this plays out then is that it's not the government's job to take care of poor people or to take care of like it's not a, their their uh, their reality. So why push on it? Like why are we? Why do we expect the government to take care of people or to to watch out for those who are vulnerable? When you know, um, Jesus never said that. That never said that. Right? Jesus was over here taking care of it. We leave a deeply spiritual life and all those kinds. So what do you, what do you say to that? Well, Jesus never told us to drive Toyotas rather than Fords (laughs) either. I mean, but that's because he lived in a different kind of situation than we live in. There was a time when, when medical care and social services and so forth were primarily spearheaded by the church. 
But that time is long past. And the only, the only instrument capable of doing broadly the, the, the kind of things that need to be done in order to protect the folks um, uh, who are most vulnerable is in the government. And the fact that the government is often inefficient and corrupt and that kind of stuff, that's something that we, we need to address, but, but it's just a tool. And, and the, the, the task is, is not um, the government service in itself, but, but the government service is an end, I mean, is a tool in, in reaching the end of caring for these people. And where they can't, the church needs to pick up the slack. But I'm really, if the church could do it all, I'd be, I mean, that would be cool. That'd be fine. I'm less concerned with who does it than that it gets done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember, I remember when Thousand Points of Light came out under George uh, and that, that seemed to be this new beginning of, we're not going to do this anymore. Like you now are responsible. And then, yeah, I just, I've been watching this kind of all this stuff around, um, I don't know. I'm not going to call people out at this point, but you know, Graham and who's yes. like, oh, yeah. but I mean, they're just, and I'm like, are you kidding me? No, absolutely. Oh. And the fact is, you know, frankly, what is sort of insidious about this is that there's a kind of moral valence attached to wealth and poverty that if you have a lot, it's because oh, yeah. you're virtuous in some sense. And that if you don't, there is something lacking in your character because we only want to help those who deserve to be helped, which, which seems to me to be a difficult place to land if you've ever read the gospels, right? (laughs) Well, that, I I would say of the, the the version of the gospel that seems to be taking root, if, if the difficult place to land question was really in their mind, they would (laughs) have a lot more. (laughs) Absolutely, I agree. Right, that ship is so. That's why there are these times when I just the whole uh, Trump signing Bibles. I just couldn't get mad enough because I'm like, are we are we shocked at all that he doesn't understand the context or the nuances or any of the realities? And then there's all this. Well, other presidents did. I'm like, well, totally different time, totally different context. Anyway, I I was just. I, I wrote something on social media about, you know, the only circumstance under which it is, it is mildly possible for this president to sign a Bible is if he signs it, Donald, the Antichrist Trump. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I saw something that said the next thing he's going to claim he wrote it. And, you know, these days, it, in the days where everything feels like the onion, like it's just everything feels like the onion. If somebody popped up and says Donald Trump claims I'm real, I'm re- I'm related to the authors of the Bible directly, and it's I I could see him going yeah okay and putting it out there, and folks well, you, would be like sure that far because there are there are people in the evangelical church who have said that God anointed him. Oh, I know. Good Lord, be this person. So we're I mean the the leap is not that far. I know it's it is it is frightening and. Oh my goodness! So th- my hope is that my my middle child her her plaque her protest sign is always I get to vote in twenty twenty. That's like her, like she cannot wait. It's like my first vote's gonna count. Exactly. Like wherever she goes to college, like you got to register there because your vote in California is not as big of a deal. Anyway, uh, well, I, this is great. I mean, I think this is you know taking on all. Everybody's having to deal with how to 
how to kind of get through this. So as, as a pastor, one who's involved with all of these things, I mean, you know that it gets overwhelming for you, I'm sure, and people you serve and you're with. So if you had to offer, like, how do you not just survive th- this time, but, but are fed and thrive so that you can do this work? What are some of the things that you would offer to your folks or to, to, to people listening to, to this massive overload of all of this stuff that's going on? What are the ways you, you thrive or and not just survive this time? Well, it, I mean, it can be exhausting. Let's just be honest about the fact that emotionally, uh, it's tough. I opened the book by saying, you know, in the 24 hours after the election, I got three, I was contacted by three different people. One was a lesbian with whom I was in grad school. Another was a refugee, Syrian refugee, whom we'd helped to settle four months prior. And another one was a, a Pakistani doctor. And they all essentially had real fears about what was going to happen to them in this coming era. And, and, and I sort of wondered about the fact that none of them had any association with a church, right, uh, formally. But they thought that at least there was something that was represented by the best of what the church could be by its attachment to Jesus, that there might be some, something to tap into. Yeah. And so. And you were a trusted, you were a trusted place to pose those questions. I I, I hope so, but I hope it, it it is in part because I was, I'm driven by my own commitments um, and, and, you know, the sort of belief that Jesus calls us to this stuff. And a great in being to people who heard no too much. Right, right. I, um, the strength and the energy to do this kind of stuff uh, in, many t- in many respects comes from a place of being able to help when we often feel so powerless, right? right. We feel so impotent in in standing up to this, this large, uh, what if, what feels like uh, you know kind of colossus, and yet when there are places where we can help, uh, that provides meaning and and you can you can survive a lot of stuff if you feel like you're a part of something meaningful. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks a lot, man. This is, this is great. Um, so let's take a very non-subtle segue into, I, I, when I talk with people who are involved in this work or writing books or doing kind of all this really good, thoughtful stuff, I also, I know we all have these other sides of us. And I always, part of this podcast and previous podcast was about getting to know people deeper than kind of their, their speaking place and, you know, all that. So um, I always ask folks about, you know, kind of all the brain candy and things that, you're involved with it. Um, so I ask people about what kind of things they do or like to do, pop culturally kinds of stuff. And you had uh, talked about Netflix and things. What, so what are you binging these days? You know, right now I'm, I'm watching two things. Uh, I'm watching the second season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, yeah. Um, which, which is just so amazingly well done and funny. Um, and, then I've, and then I've been watching um, The Umbrella Academy on Netflix. Yeah, what do you think about that? I have not been able to get into it, but what, like what? It sort of strikes me as a cross between uh, The Haunting of Hill House and The Avengers, right? Ah. Um, That there's this sort of complex family dynamic 
that they're all trying to, you know, get wrap their heads around all these years later. And yet they have these like sort of superpowers and stuff. It's, it's actually much more interesting than I thought it might be. I thought it was going to be more cartoony, but uh-huh. it's actually pretty fairly nuanced. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> okay. Um, so is, are there any that um, you're like, I'm not going to watch that for whatever reason. Uh, like I am avoiding watching the Michael Jackson documentary box. What is that? The, oh, oh, the blind box or yeah, that one. Um, uh, you know, that just, that. Uh, I, I read some stuff on that early on. I'm like, Oh, I'm not gonna watch that. That's exactly. <laughs> that does not sound like anything that makes sense to me. So uh, <laughs> it shows you what kind of a cultural Philistine I am, I guess. Well, you, you can't watch it all. So what's your brain candy? Like if you, if people are, are like, uh, uh, oh my, you watched that. So uh, mine is NCIS, which I know is horrible and awful, but I, I, I've watched that show from the beginning, <laughs> the beginning. I, I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just like, I have this, like, I don't know. I don't, and I won't justify it. I just compartmentalize my world. So. I know. I, I mean, I don't think we have to. We don't think we have to sort of apologize for things. That oh, some doing, things. Right? <laughs> <laughs> my, my friends who are Indians fans or or Braves fans, they compartmentalize. Oh yeah, God bless them. <laughs> I mean, and they know it. And I'm like, whatever. I mean, we all did. Anyway, so <laughs> what? So I mean, um, for years, I've I, I was on a I was on a, um, uh, a phone interview for a job one time in Lynchburg, Tennessee, at a church, or it's Lynchburg, uh, Virginia. And, and they said, uh, do you believe in hell? And I said, I'm a Cubs fan. I live in hell. And <laughs> anyway. And that's um, a calculated risk, right? Because people are like, oh, that is good. Or people are like, you do well, not take yeah, but, theology but, seriously. Know as well as I do that, that if they like it, then they're your people. Yeah. If they don't, there's no point. There's, there's no point going on. But brain candy, I guess, um, because I have a I have a ten year old, almost eleven year old. Um, one of the things that we can all, my wife and I and my mother in law, uh, she lives with us, um, that we can all sort of sit and watch together are Marvel movies. Oh uh, yeah, um, and they're actually really some of them are really surprisingly funny. And have you seen the new one? Have you seen uh, uh, Captain Marvel yet? I have not seen it yet. Um, it, it was it was satisfying. It wasn't earth shattering, kind of changed the genre, but it was solid. Well, I I like a lot for a different a lot for different reasons, but I will say that you know when I saw Wonder Woman, um, I was super stoked that you know there was sort of finally a kind of like with with with. Um, uh, ha- having a woman who f- who was not just a sidekick or whatever, I-, I think that's a positive move. And so I'm I'm hoping I've sent, seen some comments from people saying, yeah, no, this is really this is really good. And I'm 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 hoping that this continues that trajectory. Well, I think the things that I didn't like about Wonder Woman, um, without giving anything away, mm-hmm. were helped. I didn't I didn't take place in uh in captain marvel there are other problems with captain marvel that aren't social or more about movie itself um but some of the some of the stuff around um 
women in in main roles i think was to got taken care of in uh marvel much better which ended too much better all right so let's move on i'm gonna uh so you're a are you a fan do you play, play fantasy baseball i used baseball? to but I was so horrible at it that <laughs> um and i spent so much time sort of that that's the key trying to console myself and you know i used to think i knew something about baseball but that i sucked so bad at fantasy baseball i finished in last place in this league i i joined a reddit league which i i wanted to not be one with pastors and people i knew so i just found one on reddit and they invited me in and it's been just because it gives you it's like going to just a bar on the you know, on your corner with just random i think it's all guys random dudes just you know just hanging out talking and so it's actually been really fun but cool. um i had to um draft yesterday during one of my daughter's soccer games so i'm on my phone trying to draft look at my cheat sheet while watching soccer i was like super sports dork dad yesterday <laughs> anyway i finished last last year so that meant i, I got to finish i got to pick not first but second the, anyway so so I, I got um i got scherzer in the first round which is nice well that's you could do a lot worse than yeah, that you could anyway um, all right, so uh, let me, let me uh, uh, wrap up a little bit here. So, again, appreciate you hanging out. And then these are the questions, things that I ha give every every person for the, the long history of my BRC and Friends uh, mm -hmm. show. So the first one is this. Question one, sound or smell that reminds you of your childhood? Mm, chocolate chip cookies. Oh, okay. Uh, first concert you ever attended or you're willing to tell us about? I went and saw uh, Jefferson Starship and 38 Special at Red Rocks in Denver when I was 16. <laughs> I was I went out there this summer with my aunt <laughs> out there, and 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 she and her boyfriend took me, and um, it was quite a day. I'll tell That's you that. That's funny. Um, your first or worst job? Oh God! I mean, I know what my first job was at McDonald's, and it was pretty crappy. Uh, as, as far as jobs I hated go, I worked at a, a rust-proofing place, Z-Bart, up in Detroit um, after I got out of college, before I went to grad school. What is rust-proofing? Well, in Michigan, the salt gets on the... Right. Oh, for cars. And so you, you would you got to suit up and you spray this like tar stuff on the bottom of it. And, um, that I worked sounds awful. It was it was pretty <laughs> disgusting, but that wasn't just the worst part of it. It's flammable, right? When it's still wet, and I had these guys I was working with who just for whatever reason didn't care for me, and they would throw like um, fireworks in there and stuff, and it was just pretty, <laughs> it was just pretty shitty. I'm just gonna say that's one of those is like this is really funny. Oh crap, he's on fire. Yes, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and we can laugh about it now, but yeah. It was pretty uh, <laughs> awful. And then when I told them, my supervisor about it, he pulled everybody in picking on him. And <laughs> so I took my stuff off and walked off. I just yeah, walked that's, off. That's the best way to stop a bullying group is to tell them to stop. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, one movie comes on while you're flipping through the channels and you always watch it. I always watch Harry Potter stuff. Um, that just feels like uh, this sort of comfort. I guess that's a good uh, brain candy thing. Yeah, 
Oh, totally, totally. All right, and last one, pay it forward a little bit. One organization or person that more people should know about than why? I think uh, Shannon Crago Snell, uh, who's a colleague of mine, but she's a professor at uh, Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. She just published a book through Withenstock about her experience uh, of the 2016 election and so forth. Hmm. But she is so smart and so articulate um, in, 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 and by that, I, I mean that in the best sense of sure. the word. Yep, yep. She really says things in a way that make me think about um, what it means to be a Christian and stuff. And I, I, st- I just can't say I have good stuff about her. Uh, sometimes I hate people like that, though. <laughs> can't you just tell me what I already know and believe and just be, be done with it? <laughs> Quit trying to make me grow. Um, all right, folks, that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of BRC and Friends. Thanks again, Derek, for hanging out. But before we leave, Derek, how can people connect with you? What's all your social media stuff and website? Give us the, give us the spiel. So I'm at uh, uh, DerekPenwell.net. Um, that's my website. And that's also where I have uh, the podcast. I do Community of Resistance podcast about giving people practical tools to be able to do the work of resistance against the empire. Um, on Twitter, I'm at uh, Ray Sue Diamond, which is R-E-S-E-U-D-A-I-M-O-N, which is a combination of Latin and Greek. It's the good <laughs> Oh my God, <laughs> you're so dorky. <laughs> I was in my PhD program, so that's what it was. <laughs> That's awesome. That is, yeah, you are smarter than me. Let's just be clear. I'm not, let's not. (laughs) I don't don't even think that's even remotely true. (laughs) All right. That's that's me. Okay, great. All right, everybody go out and and, uh, pick up the book. It's from Chalice Press, Outlandish, An Unlikely Messiah, A Messy Ministry, and the Call to Mobilize. BRC and Friends was produced, written, recorded, and edited by Bruce Reyes Chow with zero help from his dog Vespa. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to BRC and Friends wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please follow, like, tag, and share on all the platforms via B-R-C-A-N-D-F-R-I-E-N-D-S. Thanks for listening to BRC and Friends. Is your car no longer stopping like it used to? Don't miss out on spring brake deals at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Our professional parts people will help you find the brake parts and supplies you need to do the job right the first time. You'll find great deals on brake pads and rotors, fluids, degreasers, and more. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit OReillyAuto.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico's. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money? Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.